Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We got Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? And you know what we do here, guys? We'll help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo. That always needs challenging. Seems like it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just because Protestantism it, uh, has invaded the evangelical church and all the evangelical fish out there. So Y'all are cantankerous, and we're just going to inf- inflame it, I guess. <laughs> are we, are we going to really call them cantankerous? Yeah, we're cantankerous, too. Yeah, that's why we literally do this. So uh, anyway, guys, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to The Church Split. Do the internet stuff. If you don't know how to do it now, there's no hope for you. Uh, also, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. They got them now on Spotify. Wow, way to get there, guys. Finally got to rankings. <laughs> uh, that's because Micah Kilmer told me, so shout out to Micah. Um, he, he left me, I think, my first five-star review on there. I say my. What a guy. Because I'm leaving you out of it. (laughs) As you always do. (laughs) Always. So anyway, guys, a couple things. Uh, One, we are going to be talking, of course, uh, about Genesis today, continuing our Genesis series. Uh, We got our beers ready. Um, I have my I drink and I know things cup. And you have your Lord of the Rings. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff going on there. You got the Ring of Power, you got the tree, got it all. So uh, anyway, um, guys, uh, our first, uh, but first, I should say, before we move forward too much, we have our favorite comment from our last video. Now, you guys might notice we did not have a video uh, or an episode last week. The reason why we didn't have an episode last week is originally my friend Jordan was going to come on, but he was sick and he was trying to power through it. And then he messaged me the day of, because the day before he's like, no, I'll do it. I got this. And the next day he was like, look, dude, this thing is just kicking my butt. There's no way I can do it. (laughs) So it was cool. Then we called up our buddy Dan and we're like, Dan, let's do this thing. And we did it. And the audio was jacked up. Everything was wrong with the episode. So the, the we'll record again. <laughs> the universe was against us. So we're going to record again with him later. Um, so yeah, this is just the way the cookie crumbles. So um, you guys get into podcasting, you might find that sometimes it's not as awesome as you might think because you end up sometimes redoing some of the episodes a few times. We've had a couple where we've redone them, and it's a little depressing. But I think we've always liked them better the second time. We always have because you gain you you get to think about it and do the episode twice. So you get to like kind of chop off the meat, you get to uh, go, you know, we, we should dig into this part better, and sometimes it's just yeah. smoother all around. So uh, anyway, our favorite comment from our last video, which was our responding to Jubilee's pro versus anti-abortion episode, uh, we had a lot of positive feedback from that, but Shira Tilton, I think it's Shira, that or Shira, but I'm going to go with Shira, she said this, the only time one can enjoy being called a heretic is at the beginning of a church split episode. Hello, heretics. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, that was, uh, Brian and I were just talking about that before we uh, came downstairs to do this episode. That is fun how to watch the church split evolve because it just kind of happens. Yeah. It started off in our, the living room as a side project. I drug you in on a out of rebuttal, yep. much to your chagrin. <laughs> then uh, I got you as a co as like a guest star, and now you're a co-host. He's he he didn't like the camera. Yeah, I like to just be behind the screen and making fun of you. But everyone <laughs> loves you. Like it, does, it wouldn't be the same. So anyway, guys, we're gonna continue the Genesis series now. If you guys are like, all right, we're gonna cover Genesis five today, kinda. Genesis 5 is a genealogy, and I know genealogies are important, and I know there's a lot of things that people can draw from genealogies. I'm not that guy. I'm that guy who, like, when I'm like, I'm going to read the Bible front to back, uh, I get to Chronicles, and I'm like, 
what have I done? Yeah, like, does it count if I just turn the page? Like, can I just do that? Because uh, genealogies are very boring to me. I know they're important, but they're boring to me. So Genesis 5 is essentially that. So guys, uh, we're going to actually go through Genesis 5 through the beginning of 9, and that's because we're just going to cover the flood narrative. We're going to talk about Noah and the flood. We're not going to read every verse like we have before, and that's just because... There's a lot of what we would say almost redundancy in the flood uh, narrative. Um, so we're going to go ahead and cover some of that. But before we jump in, Brian, is there anything you want to talk about? No, I just th- I think we're having a lot of fun with this. Um, we're going to keep building on some of the themes and some of the ideas that we've we've said in the in the first four chapters of Genesis. So if you haven't seen those yet, definitely go check those out. You don't have to watch them before then. But all this is interconnected, obviously, because it is. Um, but I think we're, we're building on some of the themes that we're seeing, some of these repetitive um, ideas that definitely impact apologetics and doctrine. Right. And there's, that's why we're doing a lot of theology instead of apologetics necessarily, because there's a lot of great channels like Capturing Christianity, Trinity Radio. Um, there's a lot of apologetics channels. I could just keep going on. There's literally so many of them. So I'm like, well, let's just talk about theology for a little bit, because we have a very different approach to theology than what is in the mainstream in the West especially America today. So we're going, we're approaching that. So uh, also, if you're watching on a video, there's this really cool bookend in front of me with Yoda holding up the book, you'll notice. Um, Brian got this for me for Christmas. He couldn't help himself. He impulse bought, bought yep, and I did. I love it. <laughs> so I am now putting a book that I'll reference in this. Uh, by the way, yes, actually, I'll just reference it now. If you haven't already, you should read The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. If you haven't, I mean, this came out in like 2015. It sold over 100,000 copies. So if you haven't read it yet, you're just like way behind the curb. But some of the stuff he kind of references as well, um, whether you agree with everything of him or not, but I'm with him on a, quite a few things. So... Anyway, we're going to jump into this. So we're going to walk through it like we always do, and when we're done, we're done. We don't really put a time limit on our episodes. It might be one of our downfalls or our uplifts. I don't know. Uplifts? Positive ends? You guys tell us. You tell (laughs) us. So, all right. With that being said, let's jump in. So... Genesis 5, obviously, like I mentioned before, is a genealogy. Uh, That's not our focus today in the series, uh, although it is important, like I said, for tracking various historical events and things like that. Although uh, in verses 22 through 24, we have a mysterious figure called uh, Enoch mentioned, who was said to have walked with God, and God, quote, took him. Thus, Enoch never suffered death. This has actually driven rabbis and other people crazy. Like, what are the details here? Enoch is one of the most mysterious figures in biblical biblical literature. Yeah, and he's referenced in the New Testament, too. Yeah, he's referenced there. Uh, Also, you guys might be familiar with the books of Enoch. Um, I recently have read through the first book of Enoch. I read through it today again. Um, It's been a while since I visited it, but... uh, I've read through the Unseen Realm, and I was like, I want to read that again. It's been a long time. And I was doing a different study when I read it originally, so now I'm revisiting. But uh, yeah, so Enoch is interesting. You should definitely check out some of the writings of the Book of Enoch. We're going to reference it a little bit. Might be helpful. But also check out the history of the Book of Enoch, um, because it's it's a little bit more confusing. Um, But all right. But in verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness of God, made in the likeness of God. Verse 2 says, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So again, this is recapping what happened in in, uh, chapters 1 and 2, right? So he created man in his image, then in in chapter 2, 
his image is brought up again, and then mm-hmm. in Genesis 6. He's emphasizing, that's important here, because he's emphasizing the purpose of man is to be creating God's image, which means we reflect God here. That is our duty, mm-hmm. which is why we are given stewardship. So Genesis 6, let's jump in. So because of time constraints, as I mentioned before, uh, we won't go through the genealogy and because of time constraints, so we're not here for 60 hours, we're just going to do an overview of the flood account instead of reading every verse like we have been, okay? Mainly, again, because the flood account gives a lot of details by which we don't draw theological views from, and this is, we're dealing with theology today. So uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, I'll go ahead and read this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or the Nephilim, were in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is probably one of those areas in scripture that people read it and go, what? (laughs) Yeah, there's some controversy here. (laughs) There is definitely some controversy here. Uh, Definitely things. I'm not sure if this topic would split churches. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. People might split churches over this. Like we said, cantankerous. Yeah, it's, it's a very confusing topic, honestly. So one thing is that the Hebrew word here, Nephilim, is the Hebrew word meaning giants or nephel meaning to have fallen. So the sons of God in this passage, the Hebrew here is benai Elohim, which means sons of God. So some believers, these are, believe that this is the line of Seth, okay? Because, and they make various different parallels as to why the sons of God could be considered uh, from the line of Seth. And this became big, really big in the church around the 4th century AD. So about 8400 uh, thereon. Right. Hmm. So uh, that, and now that is actually the dominant view I, uh, today is this the line of Seth. In fact, I have friends to this day who are like, Will, do you hold, what do you mean you don't hold the line of Seth theory? <laughs> and it's because honestly, I don't think is what the text says. I don't think what the historical text of that day said. But we're going to talk about this a little bit because the Midrash, uh, many guys know we try to pull from Judaic sources. Um, as well as Christian sources. Because I think, again, we have done... There's two problems I'm going to mention real fast. The church has removed itself so far far from Judaism that we've redefined some of of Jewish thought and some of the things that even Jesus taught, because Jesus was Jewish. He made reference to Jewish teachings, and we redefine all those things. Yeah, when you're reading the Bible, you want it in context, and we're just trying to give as much possible historical context as we can, and who better than the Jews who were doing tons of writings about the, the, the Scripture back in the day. Exactly. And then also... Uh, the other thing is, is, as we talk about this, Christians really... I, I've called Christians before practical atheists, meaning it seems like Christians do everything they can to shy away from the supernatural elements of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Like the parts that are like, hmm, that is awfully uh, spiritual and mystical almost sounding and odd. So we try yeah. to like almost physicalize it, materialize it, find a way to maybe avoid what it says. I mean... The amount of times we talk about demon possession and demons being casted out makes Christians uncomfortable in the New Testament, I've noticed. There's a reason why they don't talk about that as much, right? There's a lot of these 
spiritual aspects that are kind of avoided by Christians. Yeah, but, even you ask some Christians today, like, well, you believe in angels? They're like, well, I don't know. And you're like, wait, you don't? Yes. But I've, you believe the Bible's true. Right. Or that <laughs> Jesus resurrected. It makes people uncomfortable. So yeah. I think it's just important that we do pull from Jewish sources, and we do, of course, not ignore parts that do seem supernatural in the Bible. It's kind of what Dr. Heiser talks about in this book. Many people are probably familiar with that. But it's not that has always bothered me. But anyway, from uh, this is from Chabad.org, um, or I, I've called it Shabbat on here. Um, and that's because, let's be honest, you Americans, when I say Chabad, you're like, so is that with an H? <laughs> or do I just type in Flem Abad? Yeah, just voice text it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, figure it out. so Shabbat with a CH or Chabad, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, this is what it was written on there uh, about the explanations of Genesis 6 from the Midrash. So the Midrash relates what, uh, that when the generation of the flood went astray, God began to regret having created man. Then two angels, uh, Sh- uh, Shamhazai and Azael, came before God and said, Did we not warn you before you created man, saying, What is man that you should be mindful of him? God replied, Then, wh- uh, then what shall become of the world? We will suffice instead, they replied. God answered, I know that you would live in that world. The evil inclination would rule over you and would rule you just as much as it controls man. But you would, but you would be even worse. But the angels persisted, saying, Let us descend to the world of men, and we will show you, you, you how we will sanctify your name. And God said, Go down and dwell among them. Sure enough, as soon as the angels descended, their evil inclination overpowered them, and when they saw the beautiful daughters of men, they became corrupted and sinned with them. And they and their descendants are the Nephilim, the giants and the mighty ones referred to later on in the narrative. So in this part of the Midrash, they are saying that basically uh, angels were showing, look, pointing at men going, see how sinful they are? We told you, God. Did we not warn you that was going to happen? Here, let us go down there and help fix it. And, this, and God's <laughs> like, well, hold up. Okay, buddy, um, you, as soon as you enter the world of men into the realm of the flesh, your evil inclination or your Yetzir Hurrah will uh, take over. Because you're in the spiritual realm now, but once you go into the the, because they consider the earth, if you go into Jewish like Talmudic, and this is actually referenced by the way uh, that in the Book of Enoch, both of them have references various different layers, if you will, of the realms or heavens or anything mm-hmm. like that. Why do you think uh, Paul references uh, like was it the third heaven or something like that? Yeah, um, it's for that reason. So. They go down, and sure enough, it happens, and then they have the Nephilim. Now, of course, the book of Enoch tells the story, essentially, that the angels rebelled against God. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that here in a second. But uh, the other view of the three views in the Midrash is that these were corrupt authorities. So the giant here is meaning giant in authority, not necessarily literal, and that these men abused their powers and raped and pillaged, uh, becoming fallen the Nephilim. Then the other view is that they're just simply fallen humans. Similarly, that humans were created good, but continued to fall from that glory, destroying all things. I mean, again, I tend to believe that these were angels uh, or some sort of divine being that came down, took on flesh, and created abominations, as this is the most common view prior to 4th century AD. Yeah. And, all, and again, 4th century AD, what do you have? Well, you have people separating themselves more and more from the Jewish uh, root. And also that the sons of God throughout the Old Testament often refer to divine beings. 
Against the Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. My book is falling. Um, Yoda's not doing a very good job holding it up. Um, the force is not strong with him. The force is not strong <laughs> with him. He's old in age, dude. He's like 900 years old. Um, but right here it says the sons of God being throughout the Old Testament. So again, I mean, think about Job. It's like Satan, basically the sons of God were there. It's, it refers mm-hmm. to divine beings all the time, like angels and whatnot, as the sons of God. They're considered his children. Mm-hmm. Makes sense since he lives in heaven in the spiritual realm that he created spiritual creatures. It makes sense to me. Um, so uh, then, Brian, uh, you wanted to pull from First Enoch six yeah, one through four. It does add some color here, and, and I don't. We don't hold to the idea that that Enoch is necessarily inspired, but we do know that that the Jews held it as as um, an histor- historical text that they they cherish quite deeply. Um, so. We're adding context here. Whether this is 100% true or not, we don't know, but it seems to sure add some color to what we read in Genesis 6. Um, so First Enoch 6, 1 through 4 says, And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, and the, angels the, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And Simjaza, if I said that right, <laughs> who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not. Probably Simchaza. Yeah, I definitely don't know the Jewish ways of saying anything. So, <laughs> And so many believe, again, uh, and this is uh, something I found interesting. So the idea is here that these were rebellious angels who rebelled against God uh, and fell to earth. Uh, and, of course mated with mankind. Now, one of the other things is that some people, when they believe it's the line of Seth, this is what I'm like, and that he's just, they're just marrying Canaanite women. One, notice that it just says the daughters of men. It doesn't say Canaanites. It doesn't refer to a very specific group. It just says of men. So I don't think that, that theory holds up very well there. Yeah. And also, what is wrong with the marrying, intermarrying? That doesn't really make sense. Why would you call their kids Nephilim or the fallen? And then if you're like, well, I don't like this giant theology, okay, but then what was Goliath? (laughs) What were all the other giants in the land? He was just six foot one. (laughs) (laughs) Well... He was just taller than everyone else. <laughs> yeah, he was just huge in comparison. So <laughs> anyway, pretty short. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's it's kind of interesting when you add that color. And I also just we're also going to read in just a minute that everything was so bad. God's like, I just need to destroy all flesh. Right. What's what is so bad here? What is going on that God's like, I need. I'm going to destroy it. It's so bad. Right. Well, many believe, uh, and it's funny you mentioned that because it brings us right to the next point, that many believe that this was God's method in preserving the line of men for salvation. If the intermixing of angels and women continued, then Christ could not be fully God and fully man. So they believe that this was essentially the rebellious angels trying to corrupt a messianic line. They knew what was going on. They knew what Jesus or God was going to pull off through Jesus, and they're like, we got to stop it. We're trying to foil God's plan, like just like Satan always tries to. Mm-hmm. And I've listened to quite a few other rabbis and other uh, speakers talk about this, that these creatures, the Nephilim, the word Nephilim is not a good word. It is very negative in connotation. Mm-hmm. And meaning that these guys were wicked, horrific, and evil, and just... Uh, and there is, they could have even, they've even talked about possible disfigurement and just horrific creatures. So... Many people believe so, and then if you read the book of Enoch, it describes them as not just marrying men, but it re- describes them as murdering and raping and pillaging and even eating man. 
So these guys, if these, if this is true and they're absolutely horrifically evil creatures, then it makes sense why God would want to wipe them out. Mm-hmm. Um, also, some people even theorize that demons are different than fallen angels and the sons of God and that demons are the souls of the Nephilim because what do you do with the soul of something that's neither man nor angel um, that becomes a de- demon? I don't yeah. know if that's true. Um, There's a lot I, of different ways you could go with this, but I think... We just have to ask ourselves, what is what is the sin, the the truly sinful thing that's going on? Right, here? and I think we can actually just come to. I think I, I, we can make an agreement here, most likely, that this is a supernatural event. Mm-hmm. These are supernatural creatures intermingling with man, and that the result was bad, and that they were probably trying to corrupt the messianic line, or they were just trying to corrupt God's creation in general. Either way, what was being what was created good is now being corrupted by evil, and. And maybe that's the importance of Genesis five with the with the lineage, right? Because we're we're tracking Noah all the way back to Adam. So we we talked about this last episode when the Jews are reading this, they're going, okay, well, I know that that's that's Joseph's dad is part of this line. They understand it all, and through that we can track all the way to Jesus, the line, so we can see um, that he's part of the seed of Abraham. And it all it all makes sense. God's promises are fulfilled. You see that proved through this, the text. So perhaps the reason why we're also getting lineage from Genesis five is to show this is the pure line that is not corrupted by these fallen angels. Right. So anyway, then he goes on and says, uh, he, "There's this interesting comment as well um, about the 120 days. So 120 days. This is not." So he goes, I will not suffer, like, I will suffer with man only for 120 years, right? That's what he says, not days, years. And many people take this as a lifespan. You know, this is saying that uh, our lifespan will not exceed 120 years. But this actually doesn't make sense because other patriarchs uh, after the flood lived past 120 years. Also, um, it's not until, like, about the time Moses, where it seems like you really get, like, consistent time, time, like time spans. And then on top of that, not any people even today with modern medicine live up to 120 years. So it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But if you actually try to understand the Hebrew here and what he's saying, he's saying that they have 120 years to repent. I will suffer with them only in, uh, 120 years. Like at this point, mankind is so wicked, I will only suffer with all this crap for 120 years. In other words, he's given them 120 years to repent. Now this is... Sounds like plenty of time. <laughs> right, yes. But again, how to go hit our punching bag that we've been punching in the last few episodes. Again, if you haven't watched this, we've been kind of going, comparing Genesis a little bit with Reformed doctrines, and specifically Calvinism, and original sin doctrine taught by Augustine. Now, uh, I, we are going to do an episode. I know we did put one up on the channel when I was on uh, Alternate Media discussing Original Sin, but Brian and I do want to do a full Original Sin episode at the end of the, our short Genesis series uh, to really just break it down because yep. we have a lot of questions we've gotten like, what about this? What about that? What about this verse? What about that verse? If what you're saying is true, then what about all these verses? And I get it. We, we understand that Romans 5 is going to come up. We understand that Psalm 51 is going to come up. We understand that Psalm 58 is going to come up. We know these things. And Genesis uh, 6. <laughs> yes, and Genesis 6. But the point is we're, we're trying to set up a foundation here because if you're found – I think it's important that we create our foundation in Genesis a little bit because Genesis – these are some of the bo- the first books that any believers had. This is where they had to build their theology from. So it means that the rest of the theology that comes should never contradict the message. Yeah. It should only add context and clarification to. Um, so – 
point is here, if we, let's take this for example. If Calvinism was true, which is that mankind not only is born sinners, but they're totally depraved, unable to choose God because man in his will, in his sinful will, would never turn to God. He could never do that. It's, yeah. it's, 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 he's unable, mm-hmm. which is why he needs God's irresistible grace to regenerate him so he enables him to put his faith and trust, right? Yeah. Um, people say all the time we don't understand Calvinism. Meanwhile, I know I'm describing it just fine. But anyway, so this is saying if that is true, let me, let's clarify this. If that is true, God, by his eternal decree, decreed that mankind is, that this is how mankind was going to develop, then think about how absurd it is for God to say he's only going to de- put up with man for 120 years to give them time to repent. Yeah. Like, you got to cause them to repent, apparently. Right. <laughs> right. But I'm going to wait 120 years to cause anybody to repent. But I know they're not going to repent, but I was going to hang around for 120 years anyway. Uh, so it's just like, let me wait around for you to repent, even though you can't. For his glory? I mean, that's usually the go-to answer, right? Yeah, which, by the way, the Bible never says that every singular little thing that happens on earth is for his glory. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> like, it, it, that, it's kind of, you guys are, it's kind of like people are, making some of those things say that bottom line is that which is good brings glory to God and that which is evil doesn't it actually would we would say grieve God or anger him <laughs> all right so anyway point is 120 years doesn't make sense in, in Calvinism a lot of those doctrines don't make sense in Calvinism um but all right let's continue on the wickedness of men because I'm already hearing people oh you're saying that but do read forward will get ready <laughs> yeah get ready you're you're, you're we didn't Cal- read ahead actually <laughs> <laughs> this is all off the cuff I've never read Genesis before in my life um so Genesis 6 5 through 8 uh do you want to take that one yeah. Brian the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yeah, that's the part we're going to talk about. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's a lot of things here. Oh, gosh. Let's unpack this. (laughs) So, a couple things. Many people, you already know, if you're watching this, this is the flood narrative. So when it says the the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. People use this as a, as a proof text for original sin. See, and total depravity. See, we're totally depraved. Mankind was evil continually. Couple things. One... This was at this current state. Mm-hmm. At this particular point in time, he's saying, yep, this is where mankind is. Otherwise, what's the point of the flood? What's the point of wiping out everybody, hitting the reset button, if it doesn't fix the evil continuation? Yeah, God, like, smacks himself on the forehead and goes, ah, he's still totally depraved. <laughs> I didn't expect that. I didn't see it coming. <laughs> so it, it, it actually completely nullifies the flood. It completely flies in the face of it because whole point of the flood was a reset button. Mm-hmm. Man, it, the, the earth is so evil and wicked now, I have to wipe it out. But if we are totally depraved and so evil that we can't choose God ever and that we only choose to do that which is our greatest desire, which is our, that our sinful desire, our sinful flesh, um, then we are still, every thought of our heart is still evil continually. Yeah, the picture we're getting is like there's this boulder rolling downhill that's just gaining steam and it's picking up more and more people and the flesh of all these people is causing them to become sinful. So sinful that every thought of their heart 
is focused on evil continually. We see this ramping up. We don't see this right after Adam and Eve. God's like, well, better flood this place before Cain kills Abel. Right. <laughs> right? We see the, this kind of slow and exponential ramping up of sin. Right. Again, worse, worse, also because of the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the other thing to mention here is, um, so, it, so again, it doesn't make sense for this, right? But then it says that the Lord regretted that he made man. Now, this is where the open theists uh, and maybe even dynamic omniscience people is going to veer from the classical theists and the Molinists and things like that. So many people, like especially the classical theists, is going to say that God doesn't regret and react the same way because he is continual and he is uh, one so he like the idea is like God doesn't think, right? He knows. That's divine simplicity. Yeah, we're just trying to essentially describe God's feeling towards man through emotions that we can understand. Right. So it's like you was taking God from this because God doesn't regret the same the same way we do because that would mean he changes. So in in classical theism and divine simplicity, it would be saying that these are words to describe that these are against God's nature. Um, in more dynamic omniscience and uh, open theism, we would say this is actually God reacting because God does react, and then they would define what it means that God changes differently than the classical theist or, or divine, those who affirm divine simplicity, okay? Um, point is here, and people really, I mean, that's like a huge debate for people. Oh, yeah. Point is right here, not good, it's against God's nature, whether it's God reacting or, and uh, actually having a change in mood, whether it's using uh, human terms so we can understand how God is uh, um, how God is responding, how this lines with his nature. I'm not going to sit there and fight on that one today, okay? Not the point. But we, I think we can at least point out that this seems to really fly in the face of divine determinism because... What is God regretting? What is he upset about? His own divine decree? It right. that doesn't make any sense. I'm very upset that I chose to do this. <laughs> but they're responsible, but I cause it, but they're responsible, and that's why I'm mad, but it doesn't it doesn't make logical sense. Right. And so, I haven't had a, heard a good explanation for this from a divine determinist perspective. There isn't a good one. Sorry, folks. And <laughs> Calvinists, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. You are determinists. Uh, you can say you're compatibilists all day long, but compatibilism is literally determinism with lipstick. Um, it is just Just facts. saying that determinism is compatible with free will. Right. Well, that's what they say, but then they'll turn around and re- define your free will as your greatest desire, which is why our friend Jordan can't stand the term free will because it's like it just creates too much ambiguity. Yeah. Um, he doesn't like that. <laughs> but anyway, um, so moving forward, original sin in verse five, right? So again, if this verse is intended to show that mankind's heart was always evil continually, no matter what, then the flood meant nothing. It didn't achieve its job, which is to wipe out horrific evil. Uh, or said in another way, were men more than totally depraved then? Yeah, what was accomplished? It doesn't what, really. What was the what was part? If this was part of the divine on? decree, what was? Why did this happen? Right, it doesn't really make sense. So, and also, if that was the case for all men, right? Because all all men, it was it was evil continually. Men was evil. Uh, mankind was horrible. Mankind is totally depraved. Then, why was Noah? able to find favor in the eyes of the Lord. He's part of all men, Mm -hmm. right? If it's all, it's (laughs) Noah. 
Or you can actually take a more sensible approach, which is two things. Understand that all is not always referring to everybody, but a generalization, mm-hmm. right? Um, and also that maybe, just maybe, you've had a, a misunderstanding of that verse with original sin, and you're inserting original sin into it, which the verse is not getting at. It's saying that this is the thoughts of mankind in general, but Noah found, found favor in the eyes of the Lord, so Noah's excluded from the group. So... Uh, if that was the so anyway, uh, also notice how Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Oh man, time to really bother my Protestants. Um, <laughs> so we say all the time that we can never like I've literally heard people say your good works do not please God. Adriana uh, put one of the best comments in here, which is like, what, what was it? It's better to mur- it's, be- it's better to get help people than to murder people. Doug um, <laughs> from when her comment killed me because it's true. We're acting like certain things don't please God better or more than others. Bottom line is, I think God is more pleased with me sharing a beer right now with Brian than me, me stabbing Brian repeatedly and, of course, the eyeball. I appreciate it more, too. Yeah. So I, I think that would please God more. So I don't think we can say that mankind can't find favor in the eyes of the Lord. But I think we can, But the point is that you can't find salvation in your good works, right? Your good works can find favor, but does not necessarily mean salvation. At least not eternal salvation, but no, it does find right. physical salvation through his, right. his good works and favor in God. Right, and but it's also because his faith, because Protestants really emphasize faith alone, right? Mm-hmm. By faith alone. But we forget the fact that faith alone also means works. Works and faith go hand in hand. You can... I really hate that distinction that I, I'm constantly hearing from people is that faith and works are completely different. It's like, not really, because true salvific faith creates and goes in parallel with good fruit. You will know them by their fruit. There's a lot of parallels that Jesus talks about about the fruit. If the fruit's not there, then hmm, you're probably not yeah. in God's family. So they go hand in hand. Whether people like it or not, the Catholics actually have a point there. (laughs) Okay? So, and so does the Jews and about every other group out there besides Protestants. Protestants are the only ones that try to divorce them entirely from each other. They're not divorced. They are married. (laughs) Okay? Now, faith is what, of course, saves you. But your works go hand in hand with your faith. Yeah, I think I actually had this in the notes later, so if we say this again, I'm sorry. But Noah has faith that God will save him from this impending flood, and it's through his faith that God provides a mechanism by which that he can be saved. And just like we have faith, we repent, and we have faith that Jesus will save us from our sins, and he does. And so it's a it's a great parallel to the faith that we see uh, referenced all the time in the New Testament. Well, it's the note right here, Hebrews eleven seven says, "...by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear..." constructed an ark from for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so again, notice how Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God did not just choose him as Calvinists seem to believe. Rather, Noah's behavior, his heart, and faith brought him in favor with God. Otherwise, guess who would be caught in the flood too? So... It doesn't make sense that that we're talking about at the end of that paragraph that that Noah's found had found favor in the eyes of God. 
It's not that God was like, and that really corrupt guy that's doing all this murdering and, and terrible stuff. No, he's one of the, he's one of the good ones. And, and part of his goodness was that he had faith in God, and he was walking with God. Right. He had faith that God would save him, and he did. So, all right, now who is, uh, now in verse 5 as well, when it says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and the every intention of the thoughts of heart was evil continually. Another thing to talk about there is who is it speaking of in verse 5? Yeah, what, what is, and this gets again to the question of what are they doing that's so wrong? Right. The evil of men was so great. Why? Well, if it was the line of Seth, I guess it's just marrying, marrying sinful. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you do God's creation, created plan with marriage? <laughs> like, what? Every evangelical Christian is like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What are we fighting for in 2012? <laughs> but doesn't Jesus give some clarification on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, in Matthew he does. Yeah. So why don't you read that real quick? So Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says... For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he's Jesus is talking about a parallel here for the second coming of Jesus, that what we, what we saw before Noah when the wickedness of man was so great, and God's like, I need to destroy all flesh. That's what it's going to look like when, when the second coming of Jesus comes. So what what is it? Well, he mentions again this marrying and giving to marriage. So is it just, okay, well, when people start marrying a lot, then that's bad? It doesn't seem to compute with the rest of, of the analogies of the Bride of Christ and all traditional marriage covenants that we have, we have since this. So what is it? <laughs> right. And um, the other thing here is, um, again, there is a, I want you to, I wanted to point this out real quick, because in a lot of churches you hear, imagine Noah being told this, and for a hundred years or whatever, when he's building this ark, he's telling people, repent, repent. Have you heard those, those, oh, yeah. those sermons? Repent, repent, and none of them ever do. That's nowhere in there. Nowhere in there is, is Noah being like, hey, yo, guys, heads up, um, just so you know, God's pissed, and he's going to kill all of you. So you might want to turn things around. Never. You see that in a movie, maybe. Right. (laughs) But instead, what does actually Jesus say? And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. They didn't know it was coming. He was, uh, God was waiting to see if the law that's written on everyone's heart, you know, them being created in the image of God, if their own moral, like, if the Yetzer Hatov would actually get them to repent in that 120 years. Yep. So, but if man is, so again, but if man is always this corrupt from conception, why would Jesus point to this level of wickedness, especially with marriage as a sign of the coming of the Son of Man? Doesn't really make sense. This, these are adults and their condition, and their condition, not all people, including kids too, by the way. Yeah. So again, it's just that all, what is it really talking to? Well, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're marrying and, and, eating and drinking, and they're doing all, essentially they're doing all these very adult sinful things. doesn't seem to, that's not, I'm sure there weren't babies that were getting married. Right. (laughs) Right. So we, we seem to have uh, set a subset of people that were doing the bad things. Right. Um, So it doesn't, it's not a proof text for original sin as much you want to try to twist that. It does not, does not exist. It does not say that they were born sinful. Right. So all referring to adults 
marrying, not children. Which makes sense. We're, if we're talking about what the, the fallen angels were doing, that then it makes sense. Otherwise, what, what part of the marrying was so bad? Right, exactly. Uh, it makes part, way more sense uh, with a supernatural context here. So next verse, Noah is found blameless and righteous, right? So I don't care how you interpret blameless and righteous. He cannot be totally depraved, and those words have any meaning. Of course, people are like, well, we're not totally depraved once we're regenerated. But again, he found favor. It, again, the, the whole thing doesn't fit in that context. You have to, like, shove your theology in there to make it work. And again, it's part of the problem also, I think, not to think about is with the covenant theology in general, is it, and I've read, I've listened to a tons of covenant theology, it's the whole idea is that we learn from the Old Testament by looking through the lens of the New Testament. But I think that's a little bass-ackwards. Yep. Because if you're like, no, no, the New Testament is all, and now, and what ends up happening is people start putting Jesus Christ in various different, like, stories because they're just trying to find a Christophany at every turn. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's always beneficial. It should be the other way around. It's not, the, the Bible's not read backwards, I mean, for, yeah, forwards to backwards. It is just in one linear line. We can read it from beginning to end, and we see how the narrative connects. Um, and yes, there are things in the Old Testament that point to the New Testament, but I don't think we should be reading the New Testament over the Old Testament. We should be reading the New Testament and seeing how the Old Testament pointed forward to the New Testament. Does that make Am I making sense here? Yeah, and I think, honestly, that we should be able to see it both directions. And I, I don't think the only direction this works is if you're, you're taking a soteriology view and a picture of sin from what you derived from Romans 5 and some other things, and now you're shoving it into Genesis 6, it it doesn't seem to compute. You really got to start doing some mental gymnastics to make it work. Rather, it seems like, so it seems like if you do that, if you take like a particular soteriology and um, uh, theological systematic, if you will, and you apply it into the Old Testament from the New, or like or anywhere... It seems like if you try to take your systematic, you can make it fit in the New Testament, but once you get to the Old Testament, you have to start moving things and kind of redefining some of the phrases and words. Meanwhile, though, if you take actually our approach, our approach makes actually sense in both directions. And we're going to, this entire Genesis series is actually the beginning, I think, of a larger theology series we're going to be doing, mm -hmm. where we're going to cover a lot of the hot button chapters and stuff. So uh, anyway, let's talk about Noah and the Flood. Genesis about to rain. <laughs> it's a, we're bring, gonna bring the rain. Hit, but okay. <laughs> Genesis six nine through fourteen says these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Hold up. Is that meaning like literally everybody? So like just like no one seeks after God, all oh, wait Noah. So it can't be all in the same paragraph. <laughs> in the same paragraph, right? Sometimes you have to understand that the Bible speaking in general, general generalities. Wow, I can't speak. All right, and God said to Noah, "I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them." Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Then he gives them the schematics. Again, you have the all flesh here, right? All flesh, but not Noah. So if you're going to be consistent with all here, we see all but not Noah, all but not Noah. 
We see that continually here, just right. like you'd see in Romans 5. Which is actually a Hebrew thing. So people have to understand that Hebrews, the Hebrew idioms speak sometimes in large, vast generalities, but it, but we as, as Westerners want to be literal with their generalities. And that's not true, which is the problem when someone goes to Psalms and goes, oh, see, it says right there that no one seeks after God. Do you think someone seeks after God? Well, if you think that, then you contradict Psalms. Psalms is speaking in Hebrew poetry and Hebrew idiom. It's not speaking literally. In fact, in Acts 17, it says that mankind can seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him. <laughs> Makes more sense. That's and then convenient. people will be like, well, in Romans 1, it, Paul quotes him again because he's talking about the sinfulness of men. Then he references the poetic book and goes, after all, no one seeks after God. And if I'm looking, for example, at California... Okay, let's talk about the left coast for a second. <laughs> All the debauchery that happens over there. And I go, wow, no one in Cal- I'll be like, wow, no one seeks after God over there. You know, or in California, no one seeks after God. Does that mean nobody at all, period? No, it just means as a general whole, that group over there is horrible. By the way, we see our downloads, and we have a ton of downloads in California, so sorry. <laughs> oh, we are, yeah. Sorry, didn't mean to love we you. Just proved you. We just proved it true, right? You guys are watching us, so therefore you're seeking after God. Yeah, so there's two views of the flood, of course, two major views. Uh, so, of course, there's one idea, which is that it's a local flood, right? This was a large flood in the region, so it covered all the earth. So, in other words, uh, again, going to that generality saying that it, they're speaking in generalities, but it wasn't literally the whole earth. It was a whole known earth, right? So, therefore, to them, it would be the whole earth because it's all they've known. So that's a possibility. You can look up um, Dr. Michael Jones uh, at Inspiring Philosophy. Uh, he gives a g- fantastic breakdown of the local flood theory. Um, seriously, it's actually very well done. Um, although I hold to a global flood. But I'm just saying it's a really great, like if I was going to hold to a local flood, his breakdown is amazing. Uh, so two views of the flood, there's that. And then there's, of course, the global flood, which is what most Christians hold to and I cur- uh, currently agree with. Brian, do you currently agree with the local flood? I do, flood? too. And just to I mean, the global. continue with our mantra, right? Obviously, local versus global is not a reason to separate, not a reason to have arguments over. Have fun debates over it. It's interesting. One of them's right, right? Right. So debate it. Research it. Look at the best arguments for both sides. Make up your mind. But either way, I think if you both agree... Evil was on the earth, God hit a reset button, and there was a flood that wiped out evil. I don't think you need, again, so the core message stays the same. The, 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 mm-hmm. the rest of it, people can argue over. Ken Ham actually drives me nuts because he's very hostile toward people with a, who believe in a local flood, and I'm, I just roll my eyes a lot at it. And can I just say, like, this is, there's some heavy stuff in here, right? Men is evil, wicked, they're doing terrible things. Um, there's essentially one righteous man with with a family that God's going to save. Otherwise, everything is getting completely smited by God. And Christians in the United States will paint pretty pictures on the nursery of, um, well, it's Noah's Ark. It's so nice. This is not a children's story. This is this is it's pretty the, horrific. This <laughs> is the height of human wickedness. And then God smacks it down because it's so terrible. Um, and if you believe that there are fallen angels involved, right, we have, we have heavenly beings messing up creation even farther than we had already messed it up ourselves. So bad, God's like, time to wipe. I'm just going to erase it and start over. I don't, I don't know. If you, Comment if you think this is a children's story. In my opinion, this is, if you, this is hardcore 
God and his judgment, but also showing that God is also truly loving. The point Tim Hawkins made, oh, honey, this is when, what are you painting on the wall? Oh, I'm painting Noah's Ark. Oh, what is that, mommy? Oh, it's when God got fed up with the entire world and he wiped out everyone with a horrific <laughs> flood and killed them. Um, did you like, do your chores today? <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> so, honey, did you take out that trash yet? Uh, um, so, uh, then... Now, the reasons why we hold to a global flood, one is that there's some, there is scientific evidence for it. But as much as people say there's not, uh, there is a bunch of seashells on mountaintops, things like that. Uh, the, even the, the fossil records can be a strong indi- indication of a flood. Um, Mount St. Helens even proved kind of the fact that, like, geographical structures can change very quickly. But I will upset some of the, uh, the young Earth people, um, even though I, I fall into that camp. Um, a lot of them think that, where we got the the pressure and all the the fossils in order to create all the fossil fuels it was the flood event but we also see that noah is using pitch which is a petroleum product to help seal the ark so you kind of have a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario there where we apparently have petroleum products before the event that created petroleum so just something to think about Maybe maybe that might change your mind a little bit. Stop and challenging the status quo all the time, man. It's it's interesting to think Such about. Such a killjoy. <laughs> God created it. Anyway, so <laughs> Genesis 9-11. That's an unfortunate reference. <laughs> Genesis 9-11. This is one of the reasons why we hold to it. Yeah. Uh, I estab- To a global, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh, all flesh, be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And he's talking about the earth in general. Now, again, people could be like, well, the Hebrew word is this for the land, and again, he's speaking locally. But I just think it seems pretty clear. And also, historically, the Jews have always considered it global. And also, there are other, like, Assyrian accounts of a global flood, except they were like the... Uh, they got annoyed with man, like mankind was too noisy up top, and the, the gods lived below the earth, and they're like, shut up, and they flooded it. And like, <laughs> yeah, the, gonna turn the ark the had different, <laughs> like, the ark uh, in those stories had, like, different shapes, like a square and stuff. Um, I find, if, and there's, like, they actually have similar names, too, like, there's, of course, Hebrew Noah, then there's also, like, Nachs and stuff like that. So there's different, like, flood accounts, and so... But guys, bottom line is there's multiple accounts throughout history that would just kind of, and they are different different based on their culture, but it just kind of shows the fact that now people, there was a flood, like there was some sort of flood. And I, and I tend to fall in the camp of why we have so many different kind of ancient stories that are similar, but slightly different. I blame that on the Tower of Babel. I think once you had the language confused, we had, this was all being passed down orally, then Oral tradition got really screwed up with people are speaking different languages, and that I think could have corrupted some of the some of the stories um, going back. We thankfully we believe that we have the true story that was passed through the people that are speaking Hebrew, and, and to reflect, of course, their cultures too, like their yeah. pagan cultures or whatever. But local, this is a promise from God at the end of the flood, saying that He will not, He won't shall He won't send a flood to destroy the earth again. But we see floods destroying the earth all the time. So it would only, to me, make sense that if it was global, it would be, have to be a global flood that's never going to be sent again. That we haven't seen a second time. I should be curious what local flood people would say about that. Comment below what uh, you guys, what your guys' answer is to that. I actually did not look that up before this episode. I'd be curious. Um, Genesis seven nineteen says, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth heaven were covered. So. Again, sounds like every all of them. Now, again, somebody could be like, again, you could use the argument I've already said that sometimes they speak in generalities. That's true. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that, again, I think God's promise doesn't make much sense. I think that's one of the stronger arguments for it. Yeah. So 
Anyways, how did the animals get there? That's a question we get asked. I've been asked frequently. Um, so geography was one likely very different, and also you would not need every single animal, just similar kinds of a singular species for interbreeding, right? You'd only need technically like two canines, mm -hmm. uh, two different maybe breeds of canines, and then they could all come from that. Uh, they have shown how quickly. Uh, cre uh, creatures can be bred into different groups. Yeah. Um, We've talked a little bit about epigenetics too. Like just environment can completely change the genetic traits that are expressed in different animals. And correct. In a single generation. So we could have seen massive genetic diversity in the few generations right after the flood, depending on what parts of the earth these animals then inhabited. Right. And flesh had corrupted their way also, not that they were born corrupt. So notice that flesh had corrupted their way, not that they were born corrupt. Desire brings forth sin, which brings forth corruption. So that is really important. When we're talking about our position on original sin, when I say I deny original sin, I mean the Augustinian were born sinners. I'm not saying what we don't become sinners. I'm not saying that... Uh, there was a original sin at the fall. Right. There we do believe yeah, in an original sin event, but uh, I the doctrine is called original sin, so therefore I say I reject it, and then I get everyone's attention in the room, and then I clarify. It's fun. <laughs> um, so... But notice that, that that flesh became more and more corrupt. Well, that doesn't make sense if you were born depraved, and that if you were born a wicked sinner, uh, you wouldn't become more and more corrupt. You'd just be corrupt. And if all sin is equal in God's eyes, then any form of corruption would be as equal as any other. So it doesn't really the downward spiral doesn't make sense. Yeah. So again, notice how God tells them also it'll be each kind and species. So that's important um, because then you don't have to fit nearly as much on an ark. Uh, also, of all the accounts, of all the flood accounts in the ancient world, the biblical accounts, the only one that actually has a sailable, floatable boat. <laughs> all the other ones actually could not float. They would not last. I've enjoyed several of the different YouTube videos of people trying to show how the the art could have been made, and I, I find those all fascinating. Uh, very Just as my engineering background, I'm like, how did he do that? And how did he do that without cranes and power tools? <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm actually, I still want to go see the Ark Encounter, even though I'm not like the biggest Ken Ham fanboy or anything. I just wanted to see it because I apparently they built it with like rudimentary tools. So I'd just be curious about yeah. about it. I've never gone, but I'm curious. It'd be fun. Genesis 6 and 19 says this, And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the Ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So again, we have the clarification there that they're only species. So Genesis 7, let's move on. So notice how Noah did not do any of the preaching, as I mentioned before, and telling people to repent. Because in Genesis 7, 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have, not, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So that's it. <laughs> 120 years expired and no one else showed up. No one else, <laughs> besides Noah and his little family. All eight of them. <laughs> so God says he will send the rain for 40 days and 40 nights, okay? And then the flood comes. Uh, in Genesis 7, 11b through 12 says, All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, so in verse 24, we also see that the flood prevailed for 150 days, and then they were floating around for a long time after that. So there's a lot going on here, okay? I'm just not—I'm trying to give you guys a speedy version. So Genesis 8, then the flood finally comes to an end. And this is where things get important for us and what we're talking about today with theology. 
But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the, wind, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth mouth, and in the tenth and tenth mouth, and the tenth month, <laughs> in the tenth month on the first day of the month, and on the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, um, again, Aspiring Philosophy actually does a great job at the breaking down of the geography here, and I think he's got a point on where the uh, where it actually landed. But again, this isn't a geography uh, lesson. And even though he's a local flood guy, okay, but yet his geography is spot on. Uh, so again, global or local, perhaps. Uh, uh, one whole continent also. That's another thing. Some people theorize it was all one whole continent, the earth, before this flood, which is also maybe why all the animals were able to get there easier. I can buy that from it, just like the Pangea idea and and part of the, the water bursting forth was literally the, the tectonic plates being pulled apart and water just flying up. Right. Makes sense. It and makes you, some sense. And I'm just saying, you can look at the continents and be like, that fits together like a puzzle. <laughs> I remember as a kid, I was like, huh, that's funny, because if I grab that one and push that one there, that actually fits. Did yeah. you do that as a kid, too? Oh, yeah. I think everyone's noticed this. So the Pangea idea might actually have some validity. I think at the very least, we can assume that the geography that was, was drastically altered by that much water. <laughs> I would agree. So uh, anyway, so either way, the water recedes. Doesn't really matter. Water recedes. Again, I'm a theologian, not a scientist. So he sends out the birds, and of course, one of them doesn't return, so it must have found a home. And apparently, he didn't think it drowned. I always find that one kind of funny. <laughs> like, he, he sends out a bird, comes, ba comes back with nothing, comes back. One of them comes back with a little branch. It's like, oh, that's so cool. Sends it out again, never returns. He's like, ah, I found a home. I'm like, or it drowned. Or a like, gigantic whale just jumped up, like, finally. Food. <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh, laughs> something else to eat. <laughs> I just always find that to be funny. I'm like, wow, that's quite the assumption, Noah. <laughs> anyway, and they, um, so anyway, all the animals leave the ark, right? So they land. Uh, Get there because, by the way, Mount Ararat is not the same Mount Ararat. There's also like the mountains, and there's a whole region there. It's a whole thing. So, I don't, I'm not going to get into that right now. You again look up inspiring philosophy, check out what he does there. I think it's very good for you. It's fun, it's definitely fun to research, right? It's, it's actually, it really is just fun to research. So, Genesis 8 20 through 22 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal. So, notice that there's also clean and unclean animals even before the flood. I find mm -hmm. that to be fascinating. What do you think? What do you think there? Yeah, and I actually had a fun conversation with um, a couple of our, our friends from alternate media about this because they make the point from a Judaism perspective is that God had already established the dietary laws even then. Um, and this is God telling him to put the clean animals on board was, was God showing that this is what was coming, which I find fascinating. Um, but yeah, it, it, I also find it kind of weird that, you know, we just saved all these animals from death for them to... Be at the end, and okay, now you're getting sacrificed. <laughs> Thanks, God. <laughs> it's the end for you. What? But I made it this far. <laughs> and also, they're allowed to eat them now. So the other animals, so God, the other ones are like, wait, wh what? <laughs> no, you're supposed to only. Oh, we were friends. You're supposed to only eat the sheep. Um, I was so... on the stupid boat for all this time. Now you're gonna kill me. <laughs> this is garbage. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll get into that here in a second because he also does talk about how all animals now are food for them, right? Mm -hmm. So he opens it, opens it up. Which this is also the exact same. Actually, you know what? We're gonna get to that. Hold on. Yeah, we're just. Yeah. We'll, I'm getting ahead. <laughs> so he tells them he's gonna build. The, they build this altar. Um, 
All right, so yeah, so then Noah built an altar to the Lord and the, and took some of every clean animal, right, and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the, like, God has a nose. Yes. Um, <laughs> the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So he just promises to preserve the earth there, but the, uh, God promises to never destroy the earth via the flood. But notice this. He notices that man's intention, so first off, there's an intent here, hmm. important to mention. So this is not... I am born this way. I have an intention. There's an intent, meaning there must be knowledge of good and evil. And in Deuteronomy, it says children do not have the knowledge of good and evil because you have to have the knowledge of before you have the intent, mm -hmm. right? I can't intend to kill you without knowing the fact that I can kill you. That does, It's putting the chariot before the horse. So there has to be an intent, which is based on a knowledge. So the intention of man's heart is evil from, from, from birth, from birth. It didn't say birth. Birth. Weird. It said youth. No, it said youth. Exactly. What's that so, word mean? So that word is the same Hebrew word that's used to describe young prostitutes, to describe teenagers, to describe young people in general, and those who are actually uh, all over basically the age of three. So we're talking... And notice from is a reference point, and I, people miss this here. Mm -hmm. Man's heart is evil when? From his youth. There's a point of reference. It's from his young age, his youth age, not his birth age. Yeah. Birth. If it said from conception, I'd be like, you're right. Yeah, because... Original sin is true. But if... <laughs> let's also consider <laughs> this for a second. If you actually are like, no, it's from his youth. It's at the moment he's born. So he's not a sinner until he's born, so what was he before he was born when he was just conceived? Yeah. So are you taking the pro-choice yes. liberal side? Is it not really human yet? Yeah, it sounds like we're making a clump of cells argument. Exactly. So again, it, his intention is from his youth. So uh, we become sinners that grow increasingly corrupt because we are born with knowledge of good and evil and knowledge leads to action, right? Oh, no, no. Knowledge leads to desire, which leads to action, which means which equals intent. There's multi-step process here, and I think we tend to when I, when Protestants read this, they hear intention of man's heart from his youth, and they hear uh, you know wickedness of all men during this time was great, and they hear all this and they lump it all in with when you were conceived as a baby, and that's just not what the language is saying. Yep. You are you are literally reading that into it. So that's important. So this gives a, a point as origin of when mankind becomes sinful, which is from the days of his youth. Otherwise, you have to say that innocent babies are not innocent, which means why are you against abortion? Because we say all the time, why do we do? Why are we against abortion? Why are Christian? We you know, we Christians are against abortion because why? We are killing the innocent. Yeah, and we're just going to read in chapter nine that what is one of the things God tells them to do. Be fruitful and multiply, and make more sinners. I, like make more people if, who if are you born believe rebellious. That, that, that's sin is a sexually transmitted disease. Why is God telling him to do that? Right. 
That, then you fall into Martin Luther's logic, which Martin Luther believed those rebellious act to, to mm-hmm. procreate because you're creating more sinners, which is ironically saying that it's a rebellious act to do God's command, which is to be fruitful and multiply. Um, we'll get to that. Shaky here. ground if you end up in that logical contradiction. Yeah. Um, so this is the same text that Jesus would use, right? So that uh, so this is the same text that Jesus would use. I think we need to understand that. This text in Genesis, the same text Jesus as a rabbi would have studied. So that's got to be clear. So original sin did not come until later in history. You can read all Second Temple period literature. None of them believe that mankind was born evil and wicked. Um, people have tried to pull... I, I had a conversation with someone recently in the apologetics group I actually kicked because this person was not just pedantic, but someone who actually was continually disrespectful and not actually engaging in what was being said, just kind of doubling down. And one of the per- things they pulled from was like, well, remember with the blind man, uh, the disciples were like, so who sinned, his parents or him, that he should be born blind? Well, if they believe he could be born blind because of his own sin, then they believe babies could sin. I'm like, you are missing the Hebraic point there. And also Jesus rebukes them and says it's neither one of those things. You're wrong. So Jesus <laughs> goes, you're wrong. If you assume a person is, because of their sin, is born blind, you're wrong because they are, n- <laughs> it's wrong. So Jesus even corrects that. So even if you think that, and that's not actually what they're saying. They're saying that, like, because God would have known that he is a sinner, that God that he was good, all the sins in his life, that God cursed him by being born blind because God knows these things. This is, again, Jewish. Jews have believed that God has all knowledge. He's omniscient for a very long time. But even then, Jesus is saying, you're wrong. So your assumptions here are wrong. So uh, I think that's actually another kind of slam dunk slap in the face. Um, So all biblical authors understood this as something that developed from our youth, because Deuteronomy also makes clear that children have no knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk about that more when we do an original sin episode. Yep. So let's talk about chapter nine and wrap this this, uh, episode up. So now the narrative here comes to an end, right? A covenant is made and common law, what is called common law, uh, is established. And by the way, if you read Acts 15 and they're going, what do we do with the Gentiles? Like now that they're included, you'll notice that the law they quote that Gentiles are held to is the Noahic covenant. Hmm. In other words, dietary laws opened up here because uh, he says all flesh. Also that, well, we'll read it here. Yeah, okay. We'll so, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every and every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. So this is why animals are afraid of us, okay? So everything every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. That okay. includes pigs. That's bacon. <laughs> bacon. It's Bible. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Talk about eisegesis. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> I love bacon. I love it so, so much. <laughs> yeah, we know. You're a pig. Ha! Got him. Uh, okay. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So this means not eating raw foods, uh, making sure it's kill, killed humanely as well. Uh, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whosoever the blood of sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So in other words, capital punishment is biblical. If you kill man, 
you surrender your own life if you kill another human being in cold-blooded murder. We're not talking about war because the Hebrew word is actually different for murder and, and, and uh, killing, okay? And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So again, notice how multiplying is good, not something to be frowned upon, which by the way means, so in order, hey, Brian, I'm going to talk about your favorite oh, subject, subject. So, uh, which means that your sexual desires aren't bad. Mm-hmm. They're not bad. I will affirm that. You will affirm. On camera. On camera. I just did it. I'm going to take a clip of this and send it to your <laughs> wife. She's going to be so proud of you. But it means that they are that they are good desires because you have to be fruitful and multiply somehow. So in other words, uh, this whole purity culture thing of like, oh, my goodness, you have sexual thoughts and sexual desires. You're horrible, evil, and wrong. It's just not true. It's that God designed it that way for a reason. You can go into lust, of course, but. Like Augustine. Oh, <laughs> concupiscence well, you're ready you're ready you're just okay just punching down i guess uh, fair enough so dietary laws change so every moving thing that lives shall be food for you if god changes it here why couldn't he change it again in the new testament it's almost like dietary laws served a particular purpose during their time um so now let's talk about the covenant genesis 9 8 through 17 says this actually you want to read this i'm yeah. a little parched enjoy your beer i will read then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and Gentiles included, right? And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living, living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds... I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Right. So we have God creating a covenant. Of course, God is a God of covenants. Um, he makes covenants, which are unbreakable promises. But they're also a two-party system. People make it out like God makes covenants arbitrarily and that God is the only one who holds covenants. But the, every covenant, every command of God has an expectation on the other end. Otherwise, making a covenant with you is kind of pointless. But we see that in God's covenants, there's expectations, right? Which is why he makes a covenant with Moses and Israel. But Moses doesn't obey God properly. and He's not able to enter the promised land. Like there is it's a two-way street and people don't like that because, again, we're bringing up works. We can't talk about works. <laughs> it's the worst thing ever. Don't talk about works unless you talk about holy living. But do not talk about how that applies to your covenant with God and the fact that you might suffer repercussions because you didn't live up to your end of the covenant. I think it's <sighs> fascinating, too, that this, this, the rainbow is not, is not just a sign for us to remember God's promise, but it's also God. It reminds God of his promise to man and all the living creatures that he just said. 
which I think is kind of interesting. Well, now, one of the things that always bothered me when I was a kid is like, why a rainbow, right? Because water was around before. So that mm-hmm. means, w- like, light prismed before. So it's not like, I mean, if you were on an ocean shore and it was a nice sunny day and water crashed up and all the water was in the air sprinkling down, you would see a rainbow, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not like you needed the flood for rainbows to exist. So this whole like evangelical, weird Protestant-y kind of idea of the rainbow didn't exist until this moment, it's silly because water is... It prisms with light. It's just what it is. We have no reason to believe that. That was different. Yeah, we don't have any evidence here that physics changed. Right. <laughs> In fact, we'd almost say that physics is affirmed, right? Mm-hmm. Water water destroys. Nothing can breathe under it. Physics and everything still seems to function pretty pretty structurally. So instead, but I then one person pointed this out, and I don't remember who it was in my life, but I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Why was it a rainbow? Not for LGBT reasons, by the way. <laughs> Not... So it's because the rainbow would have been a relief. Think about it. 150 days the sun, the, the, it prevailed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking, this is rough, man. Like, we're, you are in this life and, or death situation. A bunch of people are dead. You're floating around in a watery wasteland. Yeah. Clouds everywhere. It's dark. Clouds, crappy, rain, storm. It's probably horrible. Mm-hmm. Who knows? You might see some corpses floating around. Probably did. Yeah. Um, and so... And then you look up, you see clear skies and a rainbow, something beautiful. It would become as a relief. Yeah, especially since you really probably had not seen a lot of color until then. Right. And you got the full spectrum of visible light. All you've been doing is living on a boat, taking care of animals. Can you imagine the smell? (laughs) But it would be a moment of peace, uh, of, uh, of serenity, one might say. So some believe, of course, again, like I said, this was the first time, but it does make sense. But we can see that this would be the first time it was ever considered a relief, a a symbol of God's mercy, right? Because you just witnessed days and months of God's wrath, and now you see God's beauty and mercy at the end of his judgment. So God is a God of covenants, and here he makes an unbreakable promise to never destroy man via a flood ever again. This also means he will have patience with mankind as opposed to before. He's going to endure with mankind, which he has mentioned before in other places Mm -hmm. that he endures with mankind. So I think these are important things to bring up. So again, right here, we we see, especially here, I think it undercuts the total depravity and original sin idea, unless you're going to Romans 5 and other parts of reading that into it and then applying what you think you're reading there into Genesis. But the wording of Genesis doesn't hold to original sin, and this is the same Torah the same Pentateuch or the Tanakh that Jesus would have used, that Saul or Paul would have used, that the apostles used, that the prophets used. These are the same ones. You would yeah. see, you would think you'd see more of a reflection of these things, but instead we see more Jesus reprimand someone when they seem to even assume it. But again, that it was foreign to Judaism. It's not what was taught by rabbis. We have well, most of our Jewish literature comes from that period, like the intertestamental period to Second Temple period and first century Judaism. And none of that teaches that. So even yeah. if the disciples did think that Jesus being a rabbi would be correcting their incorrect understanding, probably, and if you are making that case, it's actually probably because they had a very Greek understanding, a very Hellenized understanding yeah. of things. Um, but even then, I don't think that's what the disciples were getting. I do not believe the disciples were talking about original sin. Um, and because that's, again, we have no Jewish sources that ever taught that. 
and we and we see too like so we're thinking about what was a sin it was these fallen angels doing all these terrible things mating ruining the gene pool so that it's not just humanity anymore we have these these half man half angel things and it's corrupting it so now god's hit the reset button the line from adam is still preserved we have noah's whole family so we're, we're starting again right i guess um we're having some some uh one family essentially producing all humanity again but and then we see jesus tell us that but it's going to get that bad again it's going to get that bad again and that is when the son of man is going to come so it's i think it's it's interesting to see that it really is almost god just hitting a pause button not yet not yet this right. isn't the end which one would say is mercy so mm-hmm. um so again the reset button could have been a mercy uh, and again, if, if if you read, again, the books of Enoch, which kind of gives you a little bit more context of what these Nephilim were like, and you understand that, then you understand that there's a reason why God wiped them all out. But then people go, but they, the giants come back later, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a great question, because uh, if you read some of the text, I didn't get a chance to get into it, but some of the, uh, the text indicates that they may have continued afterwards. So like, the, but then that's why God waged holy war essentially with Israel because mm-hmm. he was wiping them out before they had a chance to become gigantic uh, in, in population uh, so that they, so the angels could have continued. Or some people have uh, wondered if like Noah was somehow connected to the Nephilim. So the gene was still around. I think that's a bit far fetched. Um, so yeah. Uh, anyway, very interesting stuff. So, do you have anything else you want to add here? No, I, I don't think so. I think it just, it's, it's a really cool story. Again, we talked about this before with the other parts of Genesis. We see God's love and justice here in very visible forms. It's not what I know a lot of people, like I was raised with, is like Old Testament God is, is a big meanie. He just smites everyone all the time. And while there's a lot of death in these few chapters, we also see, we see renewed life. We see grace. We see mercy. We see God establishing a covenant that he doesn't have to establish. We see God holding himself to that, reminding himself of it. And uh, we, we see a lot of good coming from it, too. So I think it's a, it's a good, visible explanation of God's character that we get to see in these chapters. And it, I think it helps remind us of what we need to be striving for. I agree. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about. We'll see if we continue the Genesis series from here, or if we just do one long episode soon on Original Sin. Um, we might continue the series for uh, a little bit more. Um, after that, we'll see where we go. We actually, we're just talking about this today. Brian and I need to have a meeting and figure out what's the future of the church split. We got um, a lot of ideas. We just got to kind of figure out when we're doing them. And we got a lot of interviews that we want to do and a lot of different discussions. So Right. And we even might possibly have a very special project that we're going to be launching at some point in the future that might be come to a, as a, a pleasant surprise to a lot of you, but we are we do have some things in the works. So thank you guys for your patience. If some of the content's been irregular, uh, thanks for sticking with us. And as always, don't forget to like and subscribe and share with your friends. And if you found this video helpful, smash that like button and help everyone know the fact that the church split has got good content. So otherwise, I don't know. I guess we still will do this because it's a weird hobby of ours. But uh, we or maybe it's not good content. Maybe it's just 
interesting content. Maybe it just makes you want to comment in all caps. Or yeah, maybe we're just so <laughs> infuriating, but you should still hit that like button, okay? Because there's no point in hitting the dislike button anymore. No one can see it. No one can see it. They got rid of the dislike bar. So just hit the like button, make us feel good, okay? At least do that. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you for watching The Church Split. If you have any thoughts on what we talked about, comment below, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless.